Welcome to season two of Healthcare Reimagined, the Society for Healthcare Innovations podcast series. Our goal is to showcase innovation in the private sector, as well as within provider organizations and government entities. On Healthcare Reimagined, we share strategies from clinicians, entrepreneurs, health system executives, and business and political leaders who have shifted their models to meet the new reality brought on by COVID-19. With us today, we have Dr. Richard Zane, the Chief Innovation Officer of UC Health and the professor, the professor and Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado. Dr. Zane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I apologize for being in a t-shirt in my eighth graders homework room, but <laughs> what the hell, those are the times we're in. Such is life these days. Um, so uh, I, I guess what I'd love to hear from you is, is a bit about how UC Health has innovated to meet the challenges that have been posed by this pandemic. So I think to answer that question, it might be helpful if I just back up five steps and tell you how we set up our innovation program and how it I think turned out to be relatively relatively prophetic um, and how we've adapted. So from a innovation perspective, we focused very much in a very pragmatic way uh, on digital health. So focusing on um, what are the problems that need to be solved in healthcare and using our healthcare system and most specifically our very robust single instance of an electronic medical record as a learning laboratory for digital health and innovation. Um, and we focused on intelligence, which means for us, it could mean anything to anybody, but for us, it means bringing better decisions into healthcare. And for healthcare providers, it means bringing decisions in their workflow to the point of care. So we also focused on virtual health. And I think everybody is saying virtual health and everybody has scaled virtual health. I really lament the fact that it's called virtual health or telehealth. I think it's technology-enabled care. And the way that we developed our virtual health program was on this backbone of our electronic medical record with the implementation and um, essentially integration of clinical decision support or better decision-making for the entire spectrum of care, not just urgent um, care, not just cardiology visits, not just primary care, but that whole spectrum, and have the ability to do remote patient monitoring uh, and embedding prescriptive intelligence. So because we had set it up on a robust platform um, with the intention to do remote patient monitoring, and we had this robust ability to deliver clinical decision support, we essentially were able to scale exponentially on all of those, um, all of those silos or all of those those streaks um, very, very quickly. So for instance, we have the ability uh, with one of our innovation partners to bring embedded um, algorithms and embedded policies and procedures into the workflow. So we can say, you know, click on COVID-19 and follow this pathway. And it simultaneously populates the electronic medical record and populates the orders. Now, COVID is a brand new disease, right? It's not just a new virus, but it's a new constellation of diseases, of diseases plural. And it evolves, the treatment and workup of patients evolves almost from the beginning of day to the end of the day. So the only way for us to have been able to scale that level of knowledge dissemination was really to be able to have 
a learning pathway that's embedded within the electronic health record. We already had one. So we had over 100 pathways across emergency medicine, primary care, urgent care, cardiology, thoracic surgery, oncology, et cetera. But we were then able to build COVID-19 pathways, and now we have 11 of them that are different scenarios across our entire healthcare system. So providers can essentially click, follow the pathway, and it doesn't matter that you were supposed to order a CRP yesterday and no longer are you supposed to order a CRP or you are supposed to do testing or not supposed to do testing. Um, it really changes day to day. So we saw scaling of almost 11,000% um, on utilization of pathways. Um, the same is true for virtual health. So from a virtual urgent care perspective and a virtual remote patient monitoring, um, we scaled 7,000% in less than two weeks for virtual urgent care. And the only thing we added were a couple extra workstations. We didn't have to add a single um, program, a single contract, a single anything. We really just scaled workstations and took people who weren't doing something because it was COVID and doing something else. So essentially, you know, we, we shuttered an urgent care and a couple freestanding emergency departments, brought them into virtual care got them a workstation, and they were up and running. And really, 7,000% with only adding uh, workstations. We also were able to do remote patient monitoring. So we, with one of our innovation partners, were able to um, think about taking care of complex patients at home, um, monitoring them virtually, and looking for deterioration and intervening before patients became symptomatic. So we were targeting diabetes, heart failure, um, COPD, uh, the, the usual things. We simply inserted COVID-19 for heart failure. So now we were able to discharge patients uh, with uh, different devices, depending on what we were looking for. But if they were oxygen dependent with a, uh, a remote um, app linked uh, pulse oximeter and monitor them remotely from our virtual health center. And we did that literally one day to the next. So we had an embedded pathway that we had developed the system for pathways a long time ago. The content was developed and deployed and you click on a button and it would order the remote patient monitor. Then the monitor would come to the patient. Someone would put it on their wrist and on their finger, would order oxygen. The oxygen would be at the patient's home. They'd be discharged. They'd be enrolled in our uh, virtual surveillance program and we'd be able to see them at home. So we were able to do this really over the course of days because of the way we had approached innovation. And I think to answer your question in a very long-winded way, but to sort of cut to the chase, the way that I think we will be forever changed is this concept of rapid evolution and delivering intelligence into workflows and being able to blur the lines between inpatient care, home care, and outpatient care with the ability to do virtual care and remote patient monitoring. And then whatever comes off of these devices, the clinical medical medical record, the, the waveform data goes into our data warehouse and then building algorithms on top of it to be able to manage lots and lots of patients. On the technology front, you, know, you explained kind of the infrastructure that allowed you to scale, but another thing that impressed me about UC in my previous job was how quickly you guys were able to pull together stakeholders when you determined that something could be interesting and helpful to the system and to vet things and, and move things quickly. And I think there's a lesson here for other health systems, and many of our uh, viewers do work for health systems. So I'm curious if you might shed some light on how you have designed the 
infrastructure of your system to allow for innovation to move so quickly when it can be useful, not just in a time of, of a pandemic, but, but seemingly constantly? Uh, yeah, I think the, the secret is to make things appear simple, even though they're really complicated. So uh, first and foremost, we're the University of Colorado. Um, and I think UC Health is a remarkable system, um, but we're only eight years old. We have 12 hospitals, um, 25,000 employees, $5 billion system, um, but we're not Mayo Clinic, we're not Cleveland Clinic, we're not Partners Healthcare, we're not Stanford, we're not UCSF. So first and foremost, we needed to differentiate ourselves. And the way that we wanted to differentiate ourselves was we wanted to be the system where startups or multinationals came when they actually wanted to get something done. So that cut to the chase, get shit done mentality, we thought was a market differentiator for us. And then we looked at where do startups and where do multinationals get frustrated when they're working with big academic enterprises. And the reality is that the, the big marquee places, um, you may get your first email answered or the first meeting scheduled, but then everything after that is bedlam. So we said, what are the processes that are gonna make us attractive to you? Um, mostly from a, a brand perspective. So one of them is ease of access, quick decision-making. So you may not like our decision to say no to you, but as you know, it comes pretty quickly. <laughs> <Yes. right? laughs> um, the other is from a finance, legal, and academic processes, we wanna be the path of least resistance. So we want an answer to you before you're ready for it. So everything needs to be in your inbox. So our guiding principle is everything's in your inbox. You're not waiting for us. You send us a contract, it's redlined and back to you before you have a chance to even tell your lawyer that you sent it to us. Same thing with finance, same thing with IRB, um, only because it's just so important. From a startup perspective, you guys burn cash and you can't sit there and burn cash waiting for us. Um, we get that and we want that cadence. So we wanna actually adopt that cadence. From a multinational perspective, um, they often have a lot of cash, but they don't have access to real decision makers at a high level at the point of care who can implement and change and sort of get things across the finish line. So a combination of those two things. We also decided what we were gonna be and what we weren't gonna be. Um, we, we don't do therapeutic devices. Um, we don't do molecules, although the, the University of Colorado writ large does, UC Health does not. Um, we also only do things that solve problems that we have. So we don't go off and start companies for the sake of starting companies. Um, we want to take advantage and participate in value creation. So whatever it is that we're going to build with you, um, we don't just build it for us. We build it for customers number two through 4,000, knowing that not every hospital system has 27 physician informaticists, 11 implementation scientists, you know, 14 biomedical engineers that work for the chief innovation officer, right? We want it to be plug and play for system number two, and we help you sell it and scale it. So we put together our other partners with you so that you have a multinational payer, so that you have pharma um, and that we can all scale together. Um, we also make it really hard on you, meaning it's not hard to work with us, but we work you pretty hard. So we, and, and, I, and you know this firsthand, right? We pair um, our startup partners and our multinational partners with clinicians at the bedside, at the point of care, um, iterating, implementing day to day, sometimes hour to hour, um, and we drive to a decision. 
So we want to be able to use our system, our learning electronic laboratory um, to iterate quickly. So what would take you two years at you know, Marquee Medical Center, we're going to get out the door, prove that it works or not in three months. You know, those are the, the, the cadence that, that we want that we think differentiates us. Yeah. Another question I have for you, just zooming out a little bit from UC, uh, given your position as a innovation expert and as a doctor, what changes are you seeing across healthcare that have been caused by this pandemic that you think will endure uh, to our benefit beyond, beyond the pandemic? Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a big question because um, my job as a healthcare provider and a doctor is fundamentally changed. Uh, it'll never be the same. And, and people talk about the evolution of disciplines and the evolution of, you know, insert thing here. Um, and I believe that we're in a point of punctuated equilibrium, right? And that's not a term that I invented, the famous anthropologist who said that. So I think this is one of our punctuations that have fundamentally changed us. So first and foremost, I think um, patients or customers have realized that they want what they want when they want it. And, and that means that a lot of patients are never gonna come back from virtual care because they like it and they realize that that's what they want. Um, I think that a lot of providers have realized they have to be a lot more flexible. So patient centricity is something that people talk about all the time, and I think it's mostly lip service. But what exactly does a patient want? Patient does not want to drive to your office at four o'clock on a Thursday when their kids are getting out of school and they have to take time off from work. So those sorts of things. Um, that is going to be fundamentally um, fundamentally changed. The things that that have changed, like breaking down the barriers between states for virtual health make perfect sense. I hope it stays. Uh, if you can have a driver's license and drive in any state and you have a license to practice medicine, you should probably be able to practice medicine in every state. So those sorts of things make a lot of sense. Parity for virtual care and in-person care makes a lot of sense. If I were a payer, I'd be saying, um, why should I pay you $7,000 for something that I just did on the internet for 70, you know, something like that. I think though that is uh, forever changed as well. One of the things you touched on earlier was chronic disease. And I know something on the order of 88% of admissions were patients with two or more chronic diseases. I think one or more chronic disease gets you over 95%. Folks are talking a lot about this second wave. It's not a wave of people that are impacted by the disease per se, but people who are being impacted in the community because the community health center shut down because they have chronic disease and now can't afford medication. How are you guys as a system? And you again, you did touch on this briefly, but I'd like you to go into a bit more detail on how you guys are preparing for that and uh, and servicing that population that's most at risk of adverse outcomes from COVID. Yeah, so you know it's a combination of of different things. So now I'm I'm speaking as a chief innovation officer, but also as a chair of an academic department who runs a, a large clinical service, and it happens to be emergency medicine and urgent care and virtual care. So there's a bunch of different waves, right? People are talking about flattening the curve and peaks and waves and plateaus, and there's a whole new vernacular that people never had before. But when, when you read about a second wave in the paper, what they're really talking about is now that we've had stay-at-home orders and people have been in isolation and it's not as contagious, or meaning it's not there's not as much spread because of that, and we open up using air quotes, um, our 
people going to now interact? And is there going to be a huge spread of COVID-19 causing a second wave? That's what the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal is referring to when they say second wave. We're seeing a wave right now. Um, and it's not COVID patients. We're seeing a wave of people who have avoided care for weeks and weeks and weeks, and not just chronic care. We are seeing, you know, in April, we saw four times the number of cardiac arrests than we saw in April a year ago. And it's because people are not seeking health care when they otherwise would have called 911. So we're seeing heart attacks, strokes, appendicitis, gallbladder attacks, skin infections that are waiting way too long to seek care. And it's time-dependent disease and people are dying or having permanent sequelae where otherwise they would have done perfectly fine. So that's the wave that we're seeing right now. I think the wave that you're describing is more of economic access that has changed because of a recession or a deep recession or a depression. Um, and the short answer is I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think we are all trying to navigate what has been a financial bloodbath blood, um, blood in healthcare, right? Everybody has always believed that healthcare was recession-proof. We just proved that is absolutely not recession-proof. So we don't know what's gonna happen next. Um, we are highly reliant on getting patients seen and patients are dependent on being seen. So the scheduled surgeries that were delayed, uh, they weren't aesthetic surgeries. These aren't lip um, implants and breast implants. These are people who had cancer who needed to have colectomies, people who can't walk because they need a hip replacement um, and they're suffering. So we need to get them back because they're suffering and we need to get them back because that's how we generate revenue and how we run our business. So I don't know is the short answer to what the next wave is going to be, um, but this has uh, ripped the Band-Aid off exposing the fragility of the American economic healthcare system. That is a eloquent way to put it. Speaking Ripping of the Band-Aid is eloquent. <laughs> well, <laughs> the words that preceded it were more eloquent, but Band-Aid works. Uh, if you were uh, Mr. Presidente, let's say, and, and you had to think about this trade-off between uh, economic stability and uh, safety, how would you think about, uh, quote unquote, opening up the economy um, and, and how? Yeah. So one thing is that it's beyond incomprehensible that the response to a pandemic is so polarized along political lines because infectious disease is math and science. And math and science is really important. And the answer is there has to be a balance between safety and getting some semblance of normalcy. And the answer is that New York and Denver are very different places. And Oklahoma um, and California are very different places, which means that because it's a contagious disease and there is math involved, and the math has to do with population density, with what the economy looks like, with at-risk populations, the solution is gonna be different for one place than another. There is no magic bullet and there is no golden ticket. There's no one size fits all. So the answer has to be having the ability to slowly and carefully or fast, depending on where you are, um, allowing more mobility, opening up the economy. But that's not the dangerous part. The dangerous part is failing to recognize when you have to take a step back. So three steps forward and one step back is way better than no steps forward. 
So the important part is going to be putting in place the mechanisms to recognize when you're going too fast and have to slow down. And that is not a failure. It is not a weakness. It's not a political decision. It's simply math and science. So I don't disagree that some places need to be open. They really do. People are suffering. Staying at home sucks. Isolation is bad. Economic collapse is bad. Um, a recession that leads to a deep recession that leads to a depression um, is bad for healthcare and bad for people. So we have to get back. So the most important thing that I would do if I were El Presidente would be to say, we must move forward deliberately, but we have to have the ability to take a step back when it's not working. And that's not weakness or a mistake. It's simply how you're going to manage. Thank you for that. And Dr. Zane, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for joining us on the Healthcare Reimagined podcast. You can find more about the Society for Healthcare Innovation on our website at shci.org. If you like today's podcast, please click the subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all our latest content.